0: This is series two of Lazarus Theatre Company's podcast, Spotlight On, a chance to turn the spotlight on the people behind the scenes. We'll meet the performers, the creatives, the collaborators, as well as those who inspire and provoke our work. Welcome to Spotlight On. Hello, I'm Gavin Harrington-Odedra, producer of Lazarus Theatre Company. And I'm Ricky Dukes, artistic director of Lazarus Theatre Company. Hello, Ricky, how are you? Hello,
1: Gavin. I'm well. I've just had a mince pie. Did you? It's not even December yet. No, it's not. But I like to think of it as a sort of an advanced booking, if you like, you know, just something to look forward to for this Christmas thing. I'm just not sure what to do about Christmas decorations, really, because as avid listeners will know, uh, extensive restoration of the building, it seems like he's undergoing. It's not really. It's just a kind of magnolia. But uh, the house is still being reco- I see the house. It sounds like I'm living grounds or something, don't I? And the, the flat I live in is being redecorated. but It's still not finished because apparently there's a national shortage of carpet. Or particularly right. of this colour of grey carpet, anyway. <laughs> so um, that's ongoing, but I, so I don't know whether I'm going to do Christmas decorations. I don't know whether there'll be any carpet in the place, but um, I thought, you know, mince pie. See if it gets me into the festive mood. And so far, it hasn't. But no. it's early days. I've just I've just had it before we come on air.
0: Well, I feel like the weather's certainly turned. So a mince pie in this weather, you know, snow up, snow yesterday. Um, certainly, certainly makes sense. I think. Um, it was incredibly cold over the weekend. I don't know if I've told you, Ricky, but I make gin. One of my, you, one of my, you have <laughs>
1: mentioned it. Yes.
0: <laughs> one of my jobs, I know you don't like gin, but one of my jobs is making gin. And over the weekend, we did two Christmas markets selling our gin. And it was incredibly cold. Is gin
1: particularly festive, or were people buying it for presents, or well, just these to get were, guests, or? What's yes, happening? they're
0: buying them as presents. It's, uh, so I, I live in—I well, oh, I don't know if I want to tell everyone this—I live in Crystal Palace, um, the lovely Crystal Palace, and so they were both local local markets. So they're selling local gin to local people. That's what we were doing. Um, yeah, it, was sold well, really it Sounds well. like a
1: political slogan, that doesn't
0: <laughs> it? Local gin for local
1: people. Vote Brexit yeah um anyway yes uh, really? good yeah no, i know i'm not a fan of gin i won't tell the listeners uh, my awful experience with gin but uh, just the smell makes me feel a bit strange actually yeah so if you could make something else that would be good i'll, I'll have a think about
0: what i can definitely pies. make a good Maybe cup of make some tea mince pies. oh yeah yeah mince pies don't they that's have alcohol good. in them though yeah i guess fine. I, alcohol's fine it's just gin right okay <laughs> good to know <laughs> Well, Ricky, this week, we talked to Lazarus associate and actor, David Clayton. David was born in Germany and has been living in the UK for a number of years now. He trained at Royal Central School of Speech and Drama. And we first met David when he played Canterbury in Christopher Marlowe's Edward II at the Tristan Bates Theatre in 2017.
1: Give me the paper.
0: He then reprised the role in the transfer of Edward II to the Greenwich Theatre in 2018, followed by the role of Bottom in William Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream, also in 2018, Trinculo in Shakespeare's The Tempest, and Guard of Herodias in Oscar Wilde's Salome, both at Greenwich Theatre in 2019, and then Macduff in Shakespeare's Macbeth at Greenwich Theatre in 2020. And for many of these productions, David was also movement captain. David, thank you for joining us and welcome to Spotlight On.
2: Thank you very much for having me, and uh, thank you, Ricky, for reminding me of that paper moment that I'm sure we'll talk about later. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, before, we, before we start, David, we do need to let the, uh, the listeners know that they might hear some barking, is that correct?
2: Yes, so I'm currently dog-sitting. Uh, Ned, the Irish Terrier puppy, he's about nine months. Uh, he's just had a big nap, and he's pottering around, so if there's any barking or strange noises, I'm going to blame them on him, because he can't defend himself.
0: Great. Okay. We are, we are now have been forewarned.
2: And it's not me and the mince pie. <laughs> <Just laughs> I do just want to throw in, I don't think it's too early for mince pies. I'm very much with you. Uh, good, they, good to I, hear. I kind of I find all the Christmas stuff coming early a bit of a nightmare. And mince pies are one of the few things I can tolerate before December.
0: Well, Ricky, you have been Twice. validated. <laughs> there we go. Should we dress him in something else? Oh yeah. <laughs> Uh, David, how have you been since since Macbeth? What have you been up to?
2: So obviously Macbeth was, uh, the final show was at the start of March 2020. So like many of us, I spent a lot of time at home. Um, it's been a very strange, you know, I was saying 12 months, now that 12 months is more like 20 months. Uh, so obviously it's been a very strange year for everyone. I won't bore everyone would sort of, this is what I did during my lockdown, because we've all been there and we sort of all know what it's like. Um, But I've been very well. I've managed to keep busy, which is nice. I think, you know, for all of the negatives, I think lockdown gave lots of time to sort of reflect and you realise what you were missing and what you weren't missing. Um, So, you know, and it has been nice Got my two vaccines now. So I'm I'm being a bit more social. Uh, So, yeah, I've been very well. I think, yeah, it's been a strange year and I can't really pretend that hasn't happened.
0: Right. And then we did see you when you came and saw Salome, didn't you? Yeah, that was fantastic. So that was my
2: first trip to the theatre post post-COVID, even, well, still COVID, who knows what we're gonna calling it. <laughs> where here, we are, yeah. Where we are. And that was um that was really, really great getting to see everyone. And obviously it was quite strange. It was the first time I've sort of seen a show that I was in. Um obviously people may have seen productions or the same um, sorry, the same production run the same show. So obviously recognize a lot of it. Obviously Jamie was still in it. And so that was really, really interesting. It was um, it was a really nice experience. I was a bit worried about it. I was sort of like, uh, obviously I had that experience of like, oh I wish I was still there, but um, but no, it was really great to see. I thought it was a brilliant production. The space was great, and it was obviously great to see everyone and have a beer afterwards.
0: Yes, it's always good to have a beer afterwards. <laughs> um,
2: have you always been a performer? So I've definitely always been a bit of a joker and a clown. I sort of, you know, I was a, a relatively disruptive child. Um, but I sort of first got into performing sort of in on the stage uh, GCSEs doing drama. And I remember at the time sort of thinking, why have I done this myself? Because I was actually, the idea of getting up on stage, I was absolutely terrified of. Um, but it was such a confidence boost. It was the Bacchae. That was our sort of end of GCSE show. I was playing Pentheus and just got an absolute kick out of it. I really, really enjoyed it. So kept that going through school. And then at university, sort of quite reluctantly, I was dragged to an audition for Spotting. Uh, by an old friend from school who was really into their drama and i was sort of like oh, okay yeah this will, be, this will be fun and I won't get in because I'm a first year and I don't really know what I'm doing. And so sort of I got into that which was really exciting and then I just spent my university mostly doing shows, that was my, I was very much one of the drama kids and people were always very surprised when I wasn't studying drama. And then I auditioned for drama school because at the end of the year, at, at well, at the end of the three years, I sort of realised wow I really, really enjoy doing this and people keep telling me I'm good at it and if, if I can get into drama school that's quite a good sign uh sort of that was my sort of cast of the die that was like well if I get in then I must be doing something right and yeah went got into uh Royal Central for a uh, classical master's one year not the three years I couldn't have done another three years of education I think would have gone absolutely mad. yeah six
0: years is a long time isn't it yeah <laughs> especially when you're 22 or whatever it was yeah you're 21 um and what were you
2: studying at university then uh Studying is a strong word, but a philosophy on paper. Oh, right. Okay. Uh, Which, you know, so in my final year, I think it was on the hour, two hours contact time a week. So that Mm -hmm. gave me plenty of time to just do shows and shows and shows. Presumably your role as a philosopher
0: is to think though. So, you you know, solo time thinking. Didn't do much of that, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, And what drew you to Royal Central? So obviously, I think the
2: obvious one is the reputation. Um, You know, Was it Royal then? it was just it just right. turned royal uh, which they were very very keen on all the branding you know it wasn't central it wasn't central school of speech and drama it was royal central school of speech and drama to be fair i don't know what the process of becoming a royal drama school is and i imagine it was pretty difficult and time consuming so once they got it they probably wanted to use it at every opportunity which they uh, they did but um you know it does sound good having a royal in front of it and uh, yeah, I, I absolutely loved it there, I, I had a really good time, I think, you know, but I think I would, what I was about to say, I'm going to stop start that sentence again so it actually makes sense and is a sentence. Uh, there's loads of things that I would have done differently afterwards, but I think everyone has that experience with pretty much everything in life. I was um, very concerned with being liked by the teaching staff and I wish I'd sort of just gone with it a bit more and spent less time worrying about, oh, did I do that right? Did I get that right? And sort of remembering it's a learning process. Because I think it's very easy in performative things to get very, it's hard to disconnect yourself from what you've done. Maybe that in a different educational area, you know, just go make the mistakes, learn the lessons, move on. Whereas I found myself sort of going, oh, I should have done this. I should have done that. Why did I do this? Uh, And just remember that you're, Anyone, I give this advice to anyone going or at drama school. Remember, you're there to learn. They're there to do you a service. You're not there to prove yourself. It's about what you're getting out of it. It's the lessons you're learning. Uh, and I didn't didn't quite have that awareness. I was a bit, you know, a bit younger and a bit more worried about what people thought of me than I would be now.
0: We spoke to um, another actor that we've worked with a lot, uh, Coletta Arrock, a couple of weeks ago, and she was saying that. Um, she she wanted to go to drama school and wanted to wait because because she felt she needed some experience or to be a bit older and 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 maybe maybe that's what she's talking about there as well is that that experience or
2: being a masters i was one of the youngest actually most of them most people are older and most people had some professional experience and you know just the way that they approached it there was more of confidence there was more of that selfishness of like i'm here to get something out of it and not that people there were selfish actually i think we, we had a really great ensemble, and the teaching that we had on our course was very much geared towards the ensemble, which I think then was really helpful for the Lazarus work, but just in the sense of not being as worried. Uh, but I think that's difficult because as well, you know, acting is one of those games, I think that the younger you get in the, you know, it's you'll get to play the older roles later. Whereas if you join later on, you can't, you know, there's there's certain roles that are just gone forever. Um, so I think it's a balancing act and I, you know, it's a difficult one, I think. And, you know, I definitely needed a few more years of maturity. I think if I'd gotten an age 18, I would have just mucked about really. And wouldn't have got, you know, I think there's a certain discipline you need, but you know, some people get there at different stages. Some people find it while they're there. Uh, I think everyone's, everyone's experience is so individual and it really depends on what you like. Um,
0: yeah. And what was it about classical theatre that that drew you?
2: So, um, the way the Masters there works, there's a classical strand, a contemporary strand, and some people go in with a real, this is what I want to do, that's definitely the route I want to take. But you don't apply, you sort of apply for the Masters on a whole, and then they create the classes, and that's very much based on what they think you're suited for, but also, you know, the makeup of the class, because they want to have like a good gender mix, good mix of archetypes. Um, you know, how people look, they don't want to be that sort of cloned class. Um, and for me, I sort of was up for anything. I was sort of, you know, just, just teach me how to act, that'd be nice. Um, but actually, I'm really glad I did classical because I really feel that classical text has certain challenges and techniques that you need to approach it with that contemporary text doesn't, and it's much easier to work the other way than come from contemporary to classical. I think if you, if you can do classical text, contemporary text will be a lot easier, whereas that might not be the case in reverse. And I'm sure people on the contemporary stream probably have a similar look at it. But for me, I just, you know, I do do just think classical text is really difficult and requires just skills and knowledge. It's a lot harder to intuitively act through it. I know a lot of actors are maybe more intuitive, whereas I'm definitely an academic actor. That's what I've always you know, I've I've never been one for like just feel it and see. You know, I'm I'm not a feeler when I'm an actor. I sort of, you know, I I'm I very much about the context and the research and the this is what you know hitting those beats. Uh, but again, everyone does it differently. But I think for classical, you know,
0: that's particularly useful. Do you think you got more of a grounding in kind of the the history of theatre or or the, you know where? Way- Maybe you might not get that in a contemporary course, the yeah, 100%. The...
2: So, I remember one of our first lessons was uh, was I, I'm sort of like, Oh, can I give away the trade secrets? And uh, anyone going to do a classical at Central, don't listen because this is like the first lesson. You know, well, to be fair, it will just make you look very smart or they'll ask, Where did you find that out? But our first lesson was um, the first thing of Hamlet, and it was basically to analyze it and to you know, just to absolutely everything about it. We'd, we'd go into the real, real large depth and one of the first lines I can't remember, I'm very much paraphrasing, but one of them mentions that they're holding a torch or that it's dark um, and the purpose there is obviously these would be performed in the day, in daylight, so you need to tell people it's nighttime because you can't, they're, they're, the lights won't do it for you and you know it's the spooky ghost scene, it's more spooky if it's dark, you have to tell people it's dark and for me, that sort of blew my mind. I was like, "Oh yeah, of course." Um, you know, the way that the audience interacted was so different. And when you know that, so many more of the lines make sense. You know, they're like, "Oh, okay, actually, I need to spell this out." And you know, particularly in Shakespearean text, you know, they tell you everything, uh, which I think, you know, people come from contemporary. It's all about the subtext and what's not being said. Whereas Shakespeare is what's being said. They're saying, it. "Don't worry about anything else," because there's enough there. So yeah, definitely. How
0: did you hear about Lazarus?
2: So um, it was through Spotlight, uh, this sort of Spotlight casting notice for Edward II. And weirdly, I, you know, I'd, I'd studied classical, but up until that point, I hadn't done any classical work at all. Um, and so, you know, and I, I'll be entirely honest, I didn't know much about Marlowe at all. Um, but, you know, I love the historical plays. You know, it's a really interesting story in itself. You know, the story of Edward II. Uh, the ensembleness sort of attracted me again. It, it, Really reminded me of a lot of my training. I was desperate to get my teeth into some classical work. So that sort of, yeah, really leapt out at me.
0: So you played Canterbury in, yeah. uh, in, in Christopher Marlowe's Ever the Second in 2017. That's the first time we worked with you. Do you remember that process?
2: Oh, yeah. It's, it was sort of the benchmark that all further things were measured against. Mm-hmm. It was a truly incredible show in so many ways. And I could talk about it for hours and hours. The The rest of the cast and the ensemble, it was such a, the standard at which everyone, the effort that everyone put in, the commitment uh, was just really, really high. It was a real difficult one to meet. A very supportive cast, very hardworking cast, Uh, just we were bouncing off the walls every day, getting stuff done and the Tristan dates is such an amazing space Um, and not one that I think people would immediately think of for classical shows and for me, I just really enjoyed, you know, we, we went into all the historical context. We made sure we understood everything. It was a really contemporary production. And, uh, yeah, as I said, I could talk about it forever and ever. But it's obviously where I first met um, John, Luke and Jamie. Uh, sounds like I was going for the Gospels there, but I wasn't. <laughs> um, and, you know I, I had, you know, I got to work with them multiple times. And that was the start of a real sort of both professional friendship and, like, personal friendship with, you know, you guys, them, like Lazarus as a company. It was a real... Uh, for me, it was like a real benchmark
0: moment of my career. Mm-hmm. And had you worked much? Uh, so, uh, any, for anyone who didn't see the production, um, the the design was this series of of squares on the floor. And and I remember in rehearsals, Ricky was very specific about where you were supposed to stand. Had you worked in such a uh, while? It was a contemporary production, such a specific or stylized production.
2: Not nothing on that level. You know, we literally had a grid to sort of explain this to anyone listening we had a grid and so for each scene it would be you know I move from G5 to B7 and then at that next scene change and I think you know some people might find that really restrictive but actually it was so freeing uh you know you didn't have to think about that I know I'm one of those actors that I'm always worried about what my arms are doing or hands are doing when I'm acting and actually it was such a there was such discipline and that you know the very style of it really loud, this really disciplined cast just works so well together. And, you know, we could do these amazing movement pieces. Uh, it was choreographed. And I think a lot of people, performers, particularly when they hear about stuff like that, they're like, oh, my God, that must be so stifling. You know, where's the creative freedom? And it's actually, you know, it's just one less thing you have to worry about. Um, and like visually, it was really interesting. God, I could just go on and on about it. Um, but no, I love that. And I've never really done anything quite like that. But obviously it's something that we did use we used it again in 2018 and just that discipline you know you take it with you you know just that real specificity. It is tricky isn't
1: it and actually when I'm working with actors in training particularly when going through the text process that we've made in the company. And uh, occasionally, and it's very rare actually, but occasionally I will get an actor going, God, it's really prescriptive. Aren't the writers really prescriptive about what you need to do and where you need to be? And you sort of get, well, you could look at it as prescriptive, but I think it's about trying to create a fantastic framework. And then within the framework, um, extraordinary things can happen. Um, And so actually, when you know what the rules are, and by the rules, I mean, what's the writer wanting us to do as well? Yeah um otherwise you could spend i mean if you didn't look for those clues you could basically do a whole run of a show and never really know what the hell you're doing but uh, i think if you can find the signposts or and that's the thing thinking in in staging you know i always used to call it the battleship staging because it was a bit you know g5 (laughs) to f10 or whatever it might be um there is something wonderfully specific about that but actually it the the reason actually came that one of the reasons to do that was that whenever there was a a moment of chaos as there are a few in that play um <laughs> you actually see the structure of the thing collapse so actually it was more of a sort of i suppose dramaturgical or scenographic thing but also i think there is something quite useful in going right i just know i'm stood in this box right now i can switch off and listen and yeah. I switch off i don't mean you know switch off i mean switch <laughs> off as in i don't have to worry about anything i can just listen to what well,
2: I, I know i'm not gonna be in anyone's way i know that there isn't a scene change that i'm stood on um you know i know that my props are gonna be where i want them to be uh, and again with that cast like everyone's just really on it everyone's really supportive and yeah occasionally things went wrong we sort them out for each other but you need that frame like that framework actually allowed us to do some things that could have you know we could have spent weeks rehearsing that first movement but just the fact that we could do it beat by beat square by square it took it takes a lot of the pressure off you know i always think of these things as their opportunities same with the text process that um, maybe we'll talk about it later it's it's a tool, use it. Like it makes your life easier. Um, and I think particularly as you say, like look what the writer actually wants you to do, because you know, if you don't have any clues, you could just do anything. And whereas some people might find that really liberating, if you can do anything, then there's there's no point. You know, if if the words that you're saying don't actually mean what they mean, then they could mean anything which you know you are you're, you're stuck. You 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 can get lost in that freedom in invert commas. Yeah, which in in which case you could go and write your own play and (laughs) encourage
1: anyone to go and write their own go and do that, you know. But if this is a thing that's in front of us, maybe we should try and work out what was happening here first. And then, I mean, we could always disagree with it and change it, can't we? But uh, let's know what it is first. And that's that's something really you've you've hit on there, David. I think that's really interesting about what is ensemble. And I do get asked that occasionally, particularly with, uh, at the moment, anyway, it seems to be always actually training because we're not auditioning or uh, we're doing, we are doing some workshops, but we don't get into this because we're workshopping the thing we're there to workshop. But but what is an ensemble? And I think you've just demonstrated the perfect example of what an ensemble is, is if a prop's missing, actually someone on stage will know where it is and sort it out for someone else um, rather than, oh, it's not my prop, it's not my problem. Yeah. Um, and it was really fascinating after when when some people were returning back to making theatre and we started with Salome Times two, Um, really interesting talking to the directors and one director, it's I won't name them, but they said the thing they've really noticed since the post pandemic or, you know, post being able to make work now um, was that no one would take responsibility for other people. And she said there was a circumstance in the rehearsal room. She said, oh, who is this prop? Cause it was just on the floor. And instantly she said, everyone in the rehearsal room, not mine, wasn't me, wasn't me. She went, no, 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 I'm not gonna tell anyone off. Actually, we just need to work out where it goes and who it came from and where it needs to be. And, and so she said that that was really scared than she was that we've learnt, or we sort of forgotten rather um, how to tell something together, how to back each other up or how to support each other. I mean, there might be an added element of Covidism. We don't want to all touch the same prop or whatever that might be in logistics. But I thought, you know, in a way, that's a really good example of ensemble, isn't it? That so actually you could go, I remember that in the best, you know, go, whose is this barrack lava, or whose is this um, mask, or where the dagger's gone? And actually everyone in that room would know exactly where each dagger was all the time. Uh, I think there was some confusion about a torch once, but all we had to do is work mm-hmm. it out. You know, yeah. And lovely, just turn to the stage manager and the stage manager go, they know where it is
2: better than I do. You know, it's like they've worked it out and built that into the show. So there's such a that gives you so much like more room to play because you, you've got that trust in the room. And, I, you know, I guess I think words like that are quite often thrown around in the theatre in a bit of an airy fairy way mm-hmm. is actually like you can trust everyone to be where they need to be and to have your back if something goes wrong, actually just lets you it's one less thing you've got like buzzing at the back of your mind which as you said you can stop and listen rather than worrying about where the torch is I just know because I think there were three torches and everyone used them at different points and at no point was I worried I can't remember the exact who it was but I know that let's say Hamish for example would leave it where it needed to be left because he knew that I would need it and he knew that I would then leave it somewhere for him to pick up later Um, I think there was
0: one performance as
1: well where a battery was running out and so, you know, if that was a non-ensemble production, there might've been panic backstage, but actually whoever it was who put up the table just notified the ASM. The ASM just plugged it in on the props table. And the next actual picture picked it up, just unplugged it and took the torch. <laughs> and actually that could have been in other shows I've worked on in the past, that's not been so ensemble. You might've had to do a whole rehearsal of working out who's got the, a torch rehearsal. Well, I don't want a torch rehearsal. <laughs> what a waste of time, you know? But if people are always listening out for where that goes, you know, and of course we rehearse chronologically as well, so that helps. But, um, but yeah, it, it, and isn't it interesting, you sort of go, you know, from after the pandemic, and I put after in inverted commas because we might not be after it, but returning to making work, you sort of go, what, as you started earlier, what have you, what did you miss, what did you not miss? And you think, God, yeah, we're gonna have to do a lot of work to just learn how to play and trust and listen and be reminded that, we can we can create extraordinary things if we go what can i do for the show rather than what can the show do for me and if we just switch our heads around to go actually the process of sharing or collaborating you can create some phenomenal stuff that actually comes from you lot i don't have to choreograph anything which is marvelous listeners if it just happens it's fantastic (laughs) because people are just responding and listening to each other and solving where They aren't problems, they're things that just have to be solved, rather than it becoming a big, you know, let's everyone stop and do a torch rehearsal. We just don't need that.
0: then you transferred it with the second, so the same production, you transferred it to the Greenwich Theatre in 2018. Um, was that the same production? Or was that the same process for you? Or, or was that different?
2: Yes, yeah, so it was very similar. Um, so we, we kept, I want to say, just under half the cast off the top of my head. So there was, you know, big changes there. And obviously you can't just do it again because those people need to understand why the choices were made. You know, you couldn't just plug them in, I think. I think that would be really difficult. Um, but obviously the big difference was the space. I don't think really could be more different. Uh, you know, you go from this very intimate studio to this vast, you know, the Greenwich is vast. And it was pretty incredible being in that stage. And uh, that was where the infamous give me the paper moment happens. There's a <laughs> scene where the nobles have sort of all gathered and they're signing this petition basically to say, to King Gaveston, your lover, we want to get rid of him. And we'd all sign it. And one of my lines was give me the paper. And I was given the paper, the pen had fallen off the table and by this point, talking about, you know, the stage was in chaos and I just had that horrible moment that I'm sure from the outside probably didn't look that dramatic, but I'm pretty sure for me time stopped as (laughs) I realised this pen had gone rogue and luckily John was on hand again, ensemble, and he gave me the pen. And, you know, I'm sure if the audience is like, well, that doesn't sound like a big deal at all. But at that moment, I was convinced I'd ruined the play uh, <laughs> by, not having this, by not having this pen. And again, because you're in an ensemble, you want, it, you want it to go well for everyone else. I mean, there was also another incident there. And I think this is one thing that I think people not, not actors, not performers, not creatives realise is pretty much every show you see, something will have gone wrong, but it's fixed. Um, you know, it's about the, the cast being able to sort these things out. You know, whether the prop is in the slightly wrong place or it's not there. You know, people improvise, people sort it out. Uh, you know, a line a line might get dropped here or there. And we had this big piece where we at the start of the play we undressed the king and put him in this sort of new, more extravagant uh, set of clothing, and <laughs> it was this very quick, very precisely timed. Then we, John Slade and I, um, undressed and dressed someone in. I think not much a few bars of music it was an obscenely short amount of time and uh, basically we you know pulled his trousers down pulled the new trousers on and mm. i didn't realize that i'd pulled his underwear off when i put the new trousers on and later on in the play we undress him again and he's there just in his underwear and i'm actually the person who pulls his trousers off It's he's you know he's sort of all the trappings of his um rain are taken away from him
0: anyway i realized
2: that he's not wearing any, any underwear so i pulled his trousers back up and again in the nature of ensemble um another member of the cast went oh no david's obviously run out of time don't worry i've got this and just pulls his trousers down <laughs> and poor Tim is there and i'm pretty sure it was one of those days we had a school in typically and he was just you know he was meant to, there was meant to be sort of a flash of male nudity but the whole final scene and i just I again stood on the side wearing this gas mask knowing it was coming and i could just see the moment and, you know, things like that happen all the time. And again, we all had a good laugh about it. We, all, we made it work. You know, didn't you know, no, one, no one stopped the play. You know, Tim didn't go, I'm not got pants on. Stop. Um, you just get on with it. But moments like that, you know, they really stick with you. And I still laugh about it. And what a trooper, Mr. Blore. What a <laughs> trooper. <You> know, <laughs> Absolutely.
1: Just keep yeah. on going. Yeah.
0: I remember that... Um, show report from the stage manager coming back because I wasn't there for that performance and seeing that um, the underwear had been taken off accidentally and just not really knowing how to how to respond to well, it the,
2: the one that always got me is I didn't realize that again it was so fast you know trousers on trousers up I didn't realize that he didn't have his underwear on but poor Tim had done the whole show knowing that he didn't have pants on and at some point he'd have to take his trousers off and again just if you're listening to this hats off applause to you uh, and of absolutely. course,
0: yeah, of course, it's, 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 you know, he's playing Edward second, So there is no off-stage time for no. Edward II in that production. And also it's an ensemble production where everyone's on stage all the time anyway. So there is nowhere to go and hide. So yeah, well done. Quite, well quite done. literally. <laughs> what, what, uh, you said you were in a gas mask. Can you, can you explain why you were in a gas mask? What that, what do you remember the end of the play?
2: Yeah. So we, um, Basically, the idea is, you know, again, being all on stage all at the same time, uh, Edward II is executed, and we sort of took on the role of these executioners. And we all had these masks that we put on, uh, you know, they were actually various things that were referenced to the play. So at one point, there's a sea monster mentioned, uh, noxious fumes or foul humans, I think was the sort of line that took that. And it was quite sinister, you know, we had the executioner in a clown mask, we were all in these sort of masks, and, uh, you yeah, know, it was deeply unpleasant, but actually, I do remember during sort of tech rehearsal, uh, you, you underestimate how much those things re- restrict your vision. And, you know, I remember the first few times, you, you know, the lights would go down and people would be bumping into each other. and uh, But again, you know, everyone works really hard. And by the time we got there, we had these channels, everyone was on it, knew what they were doing. Um, but yeah, you sort of you, you appreciate having peripheral vision at moments like that. <laughs>
0: We spoke last week with uh, Lewis Davidson about um, running on as the bloody Banquo in (laughs) and and how he would walk, you know, when we first started rehearsing, he would walk into things or run into things rather. Ricky was very quick to say, and we stop and we put the lights on and we work out exactly how we're going to rehearse it and do it. And yeah, we don't just keep walking into things. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And then later that year, you played bottom. Uh, just just to play a little, you know, a different slightly style different. of yeah, slightly different. Um, in a Midsummer Night's Dream again at the Greenwich Theatre.
2: Um and still with a extremely vision restricting mask.
0: Of course, that, yeah. That, so that
2: w- donkey head yeah, <laughs> tiny so little through the big, nose isolates,
0: I think. beginning to become a theme there, David. Um, so what what happened, you know, do you remember much of a Midsummer Night's Dream?
2: Yeah, I mean, it couldn't have been a more different show. Uh, you know, just yeah obviously it's a classical piece the language is similar in inverted commas but obviously the, the tone was very different and unlike ed the second that is sort of there's one through line obviously midsummer night's dream has to sort of you know not meandering that's the wrong word but you know the, the plot split up and you know the mechanicals uh yeah, working with john Slade again that was a really fun double act i really really enjoyed that um it was brilliant you know uh that opera scene we had at the end so there's the play that they performed for the um the wedding and we sort of did this as this big over the top sort of musical number which was not something i was ever expecting to have done I, i'm quite a nervous singing so i found that quite difficult and there were some people in that cast who had beautiful singing voices which again you know they're like oh you're fine it's like it's easy for you to say that you sing all the time and you love it um but again yeah it was brilliant brilliant experience the you know working at the Greenwich again and you, you could start getting familiar with it you know as well I was getting familiar with the way Lazarus works and that really you know just that time you know it gets easier you you find yourself more at ease you understand it more because um, you know it is difficult coming and doing something quite different um, you know people come in with their experiences and expectations of how they expect that show to be or Shakespeare to be generally and it can you know I think people who do well in that and any sort of cast are people who just go, OK, whatever I've been doing, that's what I was doing then. It's about what I'm doing now. It's about what everyone else is doing. Again, just the ensemble, being a team player.
0: Did you and Ricky talk much about, about the difference between you know, playing Canterbury and then playing Bottom, it's supposedly the, the most comic of, of roles in that play?
2: I mean, it's sort of the big one for me about like comedic roles, um, and I think Bottom is like a really, really good example of this, is Bottom doesn't think he's being funny. And if he did think he was being funny, it wouldn't be funny. Um, It's about, you know, people taking themselves very seriously. And it's what happens around them. And again, you know, the text work and the joy of the text process we use, it works for anything. Um, You know, again, the historical context with some of the jokes is really helpful. But I, I just think the main one is not playing comedy for comedy. Like, it can be funny, and yeah, there were certain lines that we knew would get laughs. Um, and obviously, sometimes some characters make an actual joke, you know, but most of the humor comes from the sort of the misunderstanding or the, you know, we, we had a lot of fun, I think, with the idea of the mechanicals being this amateur theater group, taking it exceptionally seriously. And if if we'd all been laughing and playing it tongue in cheek, that wouldn't have been funny at all. I saw them, I've been watching a lot of The Office recently, the American version. I think that's a similar thing of these characters who take themselves exceptionally seriously selling paper or you know doing whatever it is they're doing and yeah I, I think you know you, there's not I think particularly in classical texts when especially some of the some of the Shakespeare jokes are old and they're not funny I'm going to say that I think some people will disagree but some of them are just not funny and you 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 figure out what it means you figure out what that old English is what they're referring to and it's not very funny and we've all seen productions where the comedic characters come on and everything is said in a bit of a laugh or with a sort of regional accent because you know obviously the funny poor characters are from the north or whatever and you know they're they're being funny and they're walking funny and they're talking in this silly accent but actually it's it's not funny they might be laughing but the audience certainly aren't no it can be
1: quite naff can't it and i think i think the thing that um sort of i can't remember who told said this to me but you know when you're doing a tragedy look for the light and when you're doing a comedy look for the look for the dark and actually, I, spe- I think the thing that, um, maybe it's just my sense of humour, but the thing that I find hilarious in, in *Midnight's Dream is, is the cruelty. Yeah. Um, and actually, no one's having a good time, particularly. It's the audience is having a good time. So to be in one, it feels maybe hard work and a bit um, dark. And I suppose it's ridiculousness, isn't that there? there are moments where you go, this is just ridiculous. But I suppose if the actor plays the ridiculousness of it, then it doesn't really mean anything no. to the characters. Um, but... Um, yeah, and, and also just playing the weirdness is weird. Um, yes. you know, bottom has sex with the queen of the fairies. I mean, go try and logicalize that. You know, that's just what happens. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and they're, they're and the cruelty, you know, I always think found that with the lovers. You know, actually, we're laughing at them destroying each other, which is incredibly strange, isn't it, and complex. But I think there's but the more actually they're cruel to each other, the more hilarious it becomes for people watching. Definitely.
2: And you know, they need to be feeling the hurt. And you know, that's the the tragedy and the, the humor is this horrible love triangle. And that's people just having a bad time. It's, you know, people being heartbroken and jealous. And but that is quite funny.
0: I guess that's why slapstick was such a big, big part of cinema during, you know, the early, early life of cinema was that people were actually hurting themselves. People <laughs> were actually doing, you know, slapstick was literally people hurting their, you know, themselves and and people were laughing at that. Um, so I guess that's, you know, that same tradition of, of laughing at other people's pain. Um, I think it's a very
2: British thing as well. I think we, we, we like that humour. It's sort of, I don't know, I was about to say people getting their just desserts, but actually usually it's people who don't deserve it. But it's, it's funny, normally quite it?
0: tragic, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you, you mentioned a couple of times the, the text process that um, you work with when you're working with Lazarus. Um, without giving away too many of the secrets, can you just explain what you mean by text process? so
2: i'm trying to think of how i can do this quickly not referring (laughs) to the script but basically to sum it up really simply it's looking at the punctuation and looking at the sentence structure which is where you control breath where you control um where emphasis goes and particularly for what can be very dense classical text it really helps break it up and i remember ricky actually saying this one time like if you ever you can do it like it can take hours, but if you're in a real rush, if you get given like a page, you can just flick through it and it's real sort of it's a bit tick boxy. And again, I think, yeah, I can see why people say, oh, it's very prescriptive It doesn't sort of let you do that. But going back to what we said is it gives you that freedom, you know, just it helps with the clarity, it helps with the breath. You know, you're looking at what's been written. It, I can't, I can't. I'm, I'm sounding a bit naff. It just, it just does a lot of the work for you. It, it helps you understand the words that you really need to hit, where to put the emphasis on. Uh, it stops you falling into your own traps. Um, it helps link the ensemble, again, everyone speaking in a similar way, which I think is one of the reasons it's really accessible. It's one of the things I've always really liked about Lazarus shows. You know, we'll get big school groups and they'll understand what's going on. And I remember certainly seeing Shakespeare when I was a teenager and not understanding what's going on. And I think the process, the main thing is it helps you understand. And it doesn't matter if you give the most emotional, impassioned, you know, Hamlet speech ever. If people don't actually know what you're talking about. It doesn't matter. I think, you know, if you do any, as long as people understand you, that's most of the battle done.
0: And that really requires you understanding what you're saying, right? So this, yeah. this process helps you do that. But also, you have to do a bit of homework. You have to know what those yeah. words, you can't just use the punctuation. You've also got to know what the words mean, don't you?
2: Yeah, definitely. And sometimes, yeah, you'll feel like a right idiot when someone says, well, what does that word mean? And You, you sort of thought you knew, and then you have to explain, and you feel like a child swearing who's asked what that word <laughs> means. And again, because we, we rehearse as an ensemble. There's, I'm, I'm making this sound as if we're really horrible to each other, but we all do it. Like, and, you know, I don't think I've ever been in a rehearsal process where everyone's got it right every single time. But um, that's important because the audience certainly won't uh, forgive you if, if you're not making any sense. So I'd much rather someone in the rehearsal room says, that's crap, than the audience. Because they won't say it either. You know, a reviewer might you won't really know that you've understood something
0: until you've had to then explain it or teach it to someone else. Right? Exactly. So that part of that process is getting up and saying the words in front of everyone and having them that communicated to them. Cause that's, that's the job of an actor, right. To communicate yeah. with the audience. So if you're not able to communicate to the other actors in the room, then there's more work to be done, I guess.
2: Definitely. Yeah.
0: Right. Then we moved on to Trinculo in Shakespeare's The Tempest in twenty, start of 2019. So that again, potentially could be called a, a comic role. Um, was that process the same for you? Did Was there much? Yeah, I
2: think very much you, you just have to take, he has to take himself seriously. You know, if, if he was just a drunk, he didn't care, you'd get bored of it very quickly, I think. And uh, it, it sort of, I was told the best way to act drunk is to try really hard to be sober, like over try. Um, Is the way to do it. And again, you know, if I'd been slurring and falling over, that might have been funny for the first five seconds. would have quickly grown old. And again, you know, it's people suffering, people having a bad time. People being, you know, they're exceptionally cruel to Caliban. Um, but it's quite funny just seeing these, these pair of idiots going about their business and drinking and causing chaos. Um, but again, you just take it seriously. Know what the words mean. Uh, mean it 100%. Um, you know, I don't think Trincula at any point thinks he's being funny. And that's... No, I think that's where
1: some of the humour comes from, isn't it? Is yeah. That they don't think they're, you know, they're they're not being funny. I do remember us having a chat about sort of maybe there's a trilogy of Shakespeare clowns, but I can't remember the third one. What we were talking about, I don't know. There's a, that sort of actually, I think there's something that I admire about your acting is that you don't over, you don't mug it. You know, some some people might go, oh, I actually got a laugh, so I'll mug that actually there's sort of a clarity of their of, of the person so so actually I think I, I don't know whether it was a surprise for people you, you knew that you're playing oh I'm playing bottom or I'm playing Trinkolo the fool the sort of the, the the joke character perhaps but I, I certainly know people who went oh Dave's bottom and that was a bit <laughs> of a left you know and that's a bit of a, 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 a curveball really um and I don't know what people expect those roles to be I I, I don't know whether Big bumbling idiots, or whatever. I think
2: people with Shakespearean roles, they do sort of, again, they have an idea of what it is in their head. But if you had to articulate it, it can be quite difficult. I think, you know, especially the more famous roles, but I think Bottom's a big one. Uh, any of Macbeth is another example. Like we've got so much culture around it. You know, everyone's being exposed to it. Everyone has an idea of what the witches might be like, what Bottom's like, what the fairies are like. And again, some people, when it doesn't match their exact expectations, get a bit cross But I actually mm. think. Because these things are so old and they've been done so many times, you have to look for the, you know, slightly different things to keep it fresh and interesting. And then what's brilliant about an ensemble is that, uh, or, and core group
1: of actors is actually the joy is from a director's point of view. Is I don't really have to think about that. I just go, well, actually, who's in the company at the minute? Who's going to come back on the next show? And go, right, let's start slotting people in. So it's not thinking, oh, you know, what would Dave bring to boss? Just go, well, oh, that makes sense. He's in the company. That's one of the roles going. Let's try it. And so actually, I think you could be way more experimental. And I think when people think experimental, you would be sort of rolling around the floor with a bucket of sand. I don't mean that sort of experimental. Just as in, actually, you don't have to laboriously pour over, well, who's going to play what? You go, yeah, Bottom's a great role. I know David's going to do something with it. Let's see what happens.
2: And that's Um, also really great as an actor. Because I know, you know, so many people get pigeonholed and they feel that they're always doing the same thing. And I think, again, something that came up in rehearsals about, you know, you don't like just say the words and just play the part because you know just you the way your voice is the way you look the way the other actor looks that tells a story and obviously you can't you can only control that so so much but you know your Macbeth your bottom your witch your whatever will be different because it's you and that's that's actually quite a lot of the what the audience see and how they interpret it yeah and I've totally got more into that actually
1: recently I've just sort of Playing through my head now the work i've been doing with these students <laughs> it's sort of like i'm almost almost become militant with this now in that um it, the difference being i suppose about classical text is you can use the words as the weapons yeah you don't have to use emotions to emote for the audience so i'm not emotionally i'm not emotionally manipulating you with the emotions i'm playing i'm actually telling you what the predicament or the problem is by using the words um, as weapons or it, 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 I can use them rather than maybe jumping on the emotion bus so yeah. in Bottom or trinklos case I don't have to play the drunk or the comic role or any of that I just play the thing that's in front of me uh, and trust that the words as weapons or as a device will work rather than oh how am I going to play this well yeah. why don't you play the stuff in front of you and that will tell you how you're going to play it but that is quite a leap I think and that's interesting you say that David you know that um i do think you know when an actor comes in who hasn't worked with us before it is taking that moment to explain all of that because that could be quite a big difference of way of working and um, for for many particularly actors who may be working tv and film who do have to sort of regurgitate an emotion very quickly on set uh, actually is a very different way of thinking about it perhaps
0: and then maybe the variety that you 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 know the var- variety in the roles that you've you've done with Lazarus and with ricky it lead tends to lead into that um you know you were saying that the text process or the process of working can might seem quite restrictive But actually you're constantly discovering things you're constantly doing new things so so there is not that restriction because there's constantly something to be doing something to be striving for or or finding
2: yeah i yeah i couldn't agree more it's it seems restrictive but it gives you the freedom um um, I'm trying to think of, like, a clever simile, but I can't. Uh, Let's <laughs> job. Just, just a sense, when, when you, if you've got too much, sometimes we want less choice, and actually when you've got less choice, there's more you can do with it. Um, you know, you actually need, you know, it gives you actually, it gives you a framework to then make those choices. Because um, as you say, you just go and write your own play if you're not going to sort of listen to any of the cues that are given. And again, you know, you go through the text and actually, you know, it tells, you know, I am angry, okay. I know what, what state this character is in. You get to say it, which is so lovely in Shakespeare, you tell the audience how you're feeling a lot of the time. So you don't need to show them. You don't need to, you know, and audiences are smarter than you give them credit for, as long as you communicate it clearly. I remember once, you know, yeah, this is a
1: long, 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 long time ago. I was in a play, long, very long time ago. And I realised in sort of, I think it was week three or four of this tour, where I was just shouting everything. And the director came in and did some notes and I just said, can I just have a quick word, He said yeah sure, we had a chat I said, can you just remind me why, why we made the decision that this character was so angry and just shouted all the time. And he said oh yeah yeah it was because that great afternoon we had in rehearsal, where he came in and you just sort of like fired it all, it was all full of fire and anger and we we're like yeah that's great. And then oh right, yes, yeah, so and what else was it based on, oh no it was that, I thought oh God here I am now in this tour where I have to regurgitate this thing eight times a week that was based on nothing more than one afternoon on a Wednesday I was angry I did the scene very angry and then that was signed off and I thought god that's based on nothing that's I mean anything could have happened that lunchtime to make me angry but it doesn't mean the character necessarily is angry and I'm just shouting all whereas I think you know and of course I would say this is an advocate for the way that we work with text is we're always constantly looking for the emotion in there so actually an actor going I'm playing this angry I would say to an actor playing that same role now um, is there any point that that character's angry? And actually going back through that play, I don't think there's anywhere in the text to suggest that person's angry. And so no wonder it never landed. No wonder I felt like i would never really accomplishing anything because I was in the complete opposite direction because one afternoon in rehearsal, I was a bit pissed off. <laughs> yeah, that's a terrible thing for a decision to be based on that you don't have to do eight times a week. Um, but hopefully, I think there's always something, as you say, to, to discover, but working out who these people are, who are these yeah. people, you know, finding the clues that the writers put in the text first. And yeah, as I said, you can decide to go the opposite way if you want, but we've got to understand what's there first. That's quite tricky, isn't it? You do have to put the work in. You are a bit of a workhorse, Dave, aren't you? You will put that work in. Right. <laughs> you know, other actors will sort of sit at the side going, oh, God, there's even
2: more information. Whereas Dave's always looking for the information. When you get... kind of critical mass if everyone's doing it you've got to get on with it like i think Edward, you know the first or the second i was like okay this is what i've got to bring. everyone else is bringing this i need to bring it as well and actually by being by your hard work will rub off on other people and it will make their jobs easier and if you're all doing it together it sort of just becomes you know the momentum will -hmm. start doing it for you
0: Then you moved later. Later in 2019, you moved to a bit of Oscar Wilde with Selma. Yeah, the guard of, guard of Herodias again at the Greenwich Theatre. Do you remember much of that production?
2: Yeah. So one big one I remember is having to smoke uh, oh, a yeah. herbal cigarette, and I don't smoke. And I that was that was a big physical challenge for me. I found it very difficult. But again, uh, you know, his language is you know, you sort of immediately pick it up and it's closer to modern English. So you go, oh, that's easy, but oh my God, it was very poetic, very, very lots of repetition, very, um, stylized, actually, even if the language, the words were more familiar, the language actually really put a big gap between. And yeah, I found that really challenging, actually. Um, it's very poetic, uh, as you know, that was challenge. That was real challenge. Is that
0: because it was so, I mean, Shakespeare could, could be called poetic as well. But I think because
2: you've got that distance from, you know, you're like, you immediately know that it's going to be more poetic and more stylized, And again, the way you're speaking isn't the way you're going to be speaking. Whereas you kind of first pick up one of those Oscar Wilde's and you start and you're like, oh, yeah, he's, you know, there's no like, not, not too many. There might be like the old place name or. You know, I learned more about precious jewels during that play than I've ever done before <laughs> or after. Um, but, you know, I, I, I just think, I actually think it was a really tough script.
0: Really tough. Um, There's and lots some, of symbolism in, symbolism in there, isn't it? Which, and it,
2: which, it's relentless. It is yeah. relentless in communicating that. And again, people, when they come to see a Shakespeare know that they've got to sort of switch on. You've got to, like, listen. If you don't, like, you, you have to listen. And obviously you have to listen with any play. But you know, I always find people with a Shakespeare. They take a few minutes or longer, depending on them and the show, to like understand the language. Whereas with the symbolism, it, came, it was such a bombardment of the moon and the jewels and the. Oh, it was. It was like it's quite overwhelming.
0: And you set it all up, didn't you? You, you and you and Michael were were yeah. the two two people to that set it up for the whole audience. This is how we're going to be talking. This is this is the kind of level that you need to be understanding us at, didn't you?
2: Yeah, and it was. Um, yeah, and again, kind of unlike a lot of some of the other plays we do, it doesn't start, it's build up, it's about build up the tension, there's a lot of sort of that tension building up, whereas, you know, end of the second we started with a very big sort of set piece and everything exploded and things would be thrown and it's quite frantic, whereas this one had that sort of slow burn, which is quite a different way of doing it, you know, that's actually quite, you know, almost more exhausting, because when you're running around, it's, you don't actually have to be, the, you can't run around unenergetically, it's impossible to do you can't you know when you know four edit the second particularly like undressing someone in a few bars of music is that will get your heart racing because you've got this <laughs> to do whereas this slow I'm sure burn, it does when the pants come off <laughs> this this slow burn but keeping that energized and keeping you know it was um yeah I don't know you know the smoke and the kind of it's sexy and that can that can get quite sluggish I think could easily have happened so I, I think it was. Again, you had to not fight against it. You don't, you know. Again, you can just come out and shout. It's like, how are you? The moon is great. It wouldn't. Uh, but it, it's yeah, al- I think it it's almost hypnotic, isn't it? And and, I, and actually, I, I
1: sort of wonder whether some of the text is. I do know it acts in some ways a bit of a sedative, actually, you start to get hypnotically sort of lulled into some yeah. weird sort of, I don't know, um, hungover the next morning, kind of, you know, when you wake up and you're a bit hungover and you're a bit tired and a bit lethargic and a bit dehydrated. And it does that, and I think that's quite hard to play. I think I finally sort of, my brain kind of made sense of it, is is that Shakespeare, although the language is as or potentially more poetic, actually wants to talk to the audience. Whereas I suspect what's going on with Wilde, and I know I'm no expert on this, of course, but just with experience with Adam Salome, is it seems less of a, an actor's writer. So he's giving yeah. less to the actor to communicate. Maybe there's something a little bit more for the audience's benefit on a, on a potentially literary level. So we can admire from afar, afar all the symbolism and the, the what's happening in a literary sense. But from an actor's point of view, in comparison, you've really got far less to go on than Shakespeare is offering you, and then the connection with the audience as well. Uh, and the story doesn't drive; it's one, it's one place that, as you say, that slow burns quite difficult to to manage. Whereas um, Shakespeare and his contemporaries are pretty explosive, aren't they? There's always a, something or other going on next. Do you find, as an actor, this is a little hypothesis we've got at the moment? Is 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 there something about when you're in a show and you're busy? that's just a little bit better than in a show when you're not busy. I I say this because whenever we've, uh, uh, mm, how, how to put this, whenever there's been any sort of major challenges or overacting perhaps or indulgences or something, it generally becomes the shows that people seemingly have nothing to do in. On the shows where it's been non-stop action, pow, 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 everyone just pulls together and gets on with it. And I'm wondering whether there's something as an actor, you know, say you're in something like Edward or Macbeth, where you might have lots of things to do because you're chucking a mask here, you've got a torch there, there's a dagger over there, there's a dead guy over here, whether that just keeps the momentum of the show and adrenaline going because you're busy, where rather than, I'm stood here for 20 minutes looking at a moon. Uh, yeah,
2: that, I, I think that you've hit the nail on the head there really. Just having things to do, it, it stops you overthinking, uh, it keeps you energized obviously there, there is that school sort of, there's a risk you know if you're jumping around places or if you've got you know if you're doing something complex with a prop like trying to find the pen um <laughs> it's you know you just it keeps you busy and again with edward all those scene changes we'd have lots to do and it keeps you uh moving just as well like it keeps you energized it keeps the energy up in the body it stops things sinking into the feet which can then sink into people's voices and they start indulging in that if you've got stuff that needs to get done if you've got action you know it, it, gestures are linked you know movements are linked to the words and it just keeps you going it's it's much easier to keep driving forward and i think particularly when you're doing show after show after show there's like there's less time for you to muck about and i don't mean muck about in like you're being silly but you know they, you just you stay on the rails whereas if you're if you're just two people stood opposite each other having a conversation there's a lot more room to change it and start fiddling with
1: it yeah there was one uh, performance of Lord of the Flies I was you know we were really worried about uh, people being really knackered after Lord of the Flies and it's just too many performances of it I mean I, you did eight performances a week but there was uh, 2 midweek matinees so just feeling gosh this is an awful lot and going down to the green room and actually the cast are buzzing and yeah. you go are oh, you not tired they go no but you've just done you know, you've just done another two show day. And they were on fire, like after the show, like just, we're ready to go out clubbing or something, you know, and I remember coming down once after a matinee after Saturday and everyone was just sort of wanting to sleep on the sofa as though we would his text had somehow gone into the body and then it all becomes a bit lethargic and and just felt felt to me a bit like, God, this is a lot harder. Yeah. being still is a lot harder than having to, you know, build a
2: mountain. Well, because you've got to keep your engine running. Whereas yeah. when you're running, when you're Lord of the Flies, the, the running will do it for you. The fighting, the dark, you know, not the dark, the movement pieces. Whereas when you just stood still, it's, you've got you've got to generate it all just mm. internally, which is you know difficult. It's what you know. Not, we don't warm up like that, do we? We play games. We run around. You know, there's no warm ups. It's like alright we're gonna just stand and <laughs> warm yourself.
0: And there was yeah. no there was no set piece at the beginning so edward the second you did stand a lot in you know but you were all muscular about it but there was that big opening movement yeah. where you for two minutes you were running around the stage and stripping people naked and then in, naked. in between
2: each scene, there'd be you know just even even just a walk like a walk with purpose would sort of do it for you whereas there was a lot more um slow movement in sound of like people slowly moving around the tables, so people slowly getting in position and again back in like there was that tension that was that like all like what's about to happen but keeping that fire going internally mm-hmm. can be difficult yeah tricky
0: and we're not necessarily trained to do that are we no it's not you have to learn to do yourself yeah then you moved on to more shakespeare with macduff you played macduff in macbeth not the play macduff <laughs> <laughs> spin off <laughs> do you uh, what what are your kind of big major memories of 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 macbeth in 2020
2: well, obviously, I think it will always like be a very special one because of the quiet afterwards. Um, you know, obviously at the time we didn't realise how lucky we were to get to finish that show because so it was really a week, two weeks off before lockdown. It was you know poor Head was right afterwards, and you were rehearsing while we were performing. Um, but there was uh, you know oh, I was such I just thought the cast was brilliant. It's a really good play. I think that Beth is just one of the better Shakespeare's. I really like it. I think, again, there's a lot going on. There's a, you know, there's interesting set pieces, there's violence, there's witches, there's, you know, people like that, it's exciting, it's different. Um, I, I'm trying to think of sort of a specific. Um, so I say I think, that you,
0: sorry, I say that you played Macduff, but you also played a witch, didn't you? Yeah, I did. Yeah.
2: Um, which was, yeah, really good fun, our little trio. Um, that was another really gas great. Mask. Yeah, another guest mask, again, <laughs> getting that on and off was a bit of a nightmare. Um, and the there was bloody, lots of there was lots of light acting that was another one that we had to sort of do. but again, you know everyone just brought their all and they did that and again, I think this is a great example of what we talked about earlier. All those bits, um, you know the ending when Macduff is you know hunting for Macbeth and they're about to fight generating that it's all you know it all makes sense. the scene that was a bit more of a struggle was um, obviously with the king going down to England and trying to convince him to come back to rescue Scotland that was a lot more of a you know the two of us stood having, and everything was with the words, there was no action and generating that and keeping it going. You no, know, we, we did, you know, the two of us would be like, Oh, ah, we need to, and but eventually we got there, it just was a bit harder work than when you know, with the running around and the chasing. Kind of, and it's the longest again. scene in the play, isn't it? Yeah, you know, and you go from a loss of action, there's been a murder to you know, and again, the this kind of text can be quite alien, you know, talking about you know very medieval but well, renaissance virtues that might not communicate quite as well then
0: again i think that shakespeare doing, you know doing what shakespeare does and and what his genius is that that play is written where, where the scenes get shorter and shorter as the play goes on and yeah. then all of a sudden we have the longest scene in the play in that last third of the last third yeah um it really kind of cements that i mean it's a horrible scene as well isn't it he mm-hmm. gets, macduff gets told that his little chickens are gone <laughs> 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 oh my God. I chickens i don't remember other yeah. babies his children yeah, yeah his, his chicks, little his i'm chicks. sorry your little chickens have gone oh yeah. <laughs> sorry about your chicken nuggets but again in that production to keep you the motor running do you remember having to run through the oh hall?
2: my gosh the whole the whole back of the theater and again sort of as well you, you realize when you do it actually you do it quite quickly but again, you know, sort of with that moment of adrenaline as you're going, you're like, well, if I don't rock up at the door on time, the whole play will be ruined because I can't get up these bloody stairs fast enough. And, um, you know, we'd always get there early and there'd be that, like, oh, we'll wait to leap out. Um, but yeah, there was lots of running around in that. There was lots to do. And I do think that helps. I do think that just makes it easier. You, you know, it keeps you focused. It's those, it's those moments where, you know, maybe in a more traditional show when you're backstage for a very long time. That's when you can lose focus. Whereas if you have always got something to be doing, there's always a prop that needs to go somewhere. If there's a change, you know, focusing on the action it keeps you, it just keeps you engaged and going, and it makes it makes your life easier.
0: There was no hiding in that production either, was there? the 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 the, the design had. The whole auditorium had been the proscenium arch. The false proscenium arch had been taken out, so everything on stage could be seen. All the wings, everything was was completely in view. So, um did that did that affect you at all? Did you even notice that?
2: The thing is, I think it was such a Lazarus thing to do. We we would have probably done it in the previous ones. um You know, just because you know everything's bare all the props are there. You know, we don't sort of hide anything. There's there is trickery but it's not the sort of traditional like trying to deceive the audience so again it just it made the stage bigger it made this playing space bigger which again you have to energize yourself more it took more vocal energy you know there was less sort of bouncing off the walls for you but um it's just more exciting you're in this bigger bigger space and you know when when that auditorium was full of people you know the energy in that room is just brilliant amazing isn't it when you go out to that um
1: feel always feels one of the things i love the most about that space and. um It it feels very gladiatorial in terms of, you know, a big Greek amphitheatre or Roman Colosseum or something when it's full and buzzing with energy.
2: Yeah.
1: And you feel like you're you'll go up those stairs into an amphitheatre, into a Colosseum where wars are going to be waged or, you know, it just feels like an event. Um, And it really feels like that space excels when you then bring an event. And uh, very happy that Beth did that because it felt like we brought the event, filled the space and some. And that theatre said, "Yeah, you know this. This is what this is what I'm here for. Bring on, bring this stuff on." I, one of the things I wanted to ask you, Dave, was about um, as an actor, as part of the residency, working in the same space. Are there any? Uh, are there things in terms of maybe technically, but also, um, I don't know, emotionally or connected to the space that you find pros or cons about working in the same space? Because as a director, I suppose as a residency and as a company. It's been very important, and it's been brilliant for me as a director because you sort of you feel like you really do know a space, and then you can start pushing the boundaries of that space. Um, and that's essentially, you know, one of the one of the biggest reasons why we want our own theatre space to be able to do that um, and to to then be able to push the beyond the, the boundaries of that. But I'm wondering how much that affects actors when you know the space
2: a bit better by the time you've done show four rather than the first one. So I think on the positive, there is just the sense of you're more familiar with the space, which is always useful. Uh, you know, there's just less time spent getting to know the space. You're more confident in the space. You know, you kind of know where you have to pitch your voice, you know, how long it takes you to get from A to B. Uh, it's just that familiarity. It's again, one less thing to think about. Emotionally, like, certainly I will always have a connection to the Greenwich Theatre. You know, there was that like, oh yeah, this was where this happened and that, and those good memories are there and you know you remember that feeling with the audience i guess my my only sort of negative would be in a creative sense is you kind of start maybe putting up your own well this is what we did last time so we could do that again or well that didn't work last time so it won't work now uh you kind of maybe your creativity is stifled a little bit whereas you know you go into a new space and all these new opportunities appear whereas you know when I go there I see the staging for the stuff we've done I see the entrances I see the movement pieces I see how it feels coming down and I'd say I don't think it's a huge disadvantage but I could see that happening getting sort of stuck in a well no 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 that that won't work or oh yeah let's do it like that and realize actually you've kind of already done that before um, and I suppose maybe... the key to that then is um, in an ideal world having
1: your own theatre or your own space, at least in which you perform. It doesn't have to be a theatre theatre. Um, actually, I suppose that's when you go. Well, that's where you bring other directors in yeah. or other collaborators, other designers, and you say to the designer, "Look, you know this is the space. What do you want? What are you going to do with it?" And so that um, actually, the next time there's a whacking great swimming pool. in the middle of it or the whole thing's covered in sand or the whole thing's mud or you know so that that, that's my feeling is then actually it's uh, you have the security of all the positive things you've just said the the negative one how do you combat that well you have to respond to the space or you don't have to but maybe the point is that you bring other people in to respond to the space differently um and and I think that's great as an audience isn't it you know I always I always love walking into the young Vic or the Don Mar and you walk in and go oh look what they've done you know yeah. it feels the actual architecture of the building the Almedia you get that quite a lot with don't you and I do feel a little bit of although we do strip things back I do certainly remember people walking up who might not be familiar with our work or even people who have seen it before who've come into the theatre and just are in awe of the cavernous space yeah you know Um, I've never seen, you know, this is me being nasty about other shows at the Greenwich, but, but uh, I I love that moment when people come up and they walk into space and go, wow. And actually what they're wowing is, is a massive empty room, rather than you're walking in and going, wow, at the show cloth. You know, we're wowing at the architecture of the building, the thing, the thing we're playing in. That's way more exciting for me going, you know, the, the thing that we're, the space we're playing in is the wow, not the funny whizzy piece of set I put in the way um you know just getting just having that energy they're up for the play then aren't they they're up for this thing then because they're already excited about being in this huge uh, space and that's certainly something i'm really excited about going back to live performance next year is making that theatrical experience not the play necessarily it's the experience of walking into a l- space that's larger than us a space that contains lots of people you know, which yeah. I know it's not very COVID, COVID secure, but <laughs> just uh, hopefully by next April we'll be in a place where you go, I can sit with 700 people and experience this moment, this thing happens. But but walking into a space and being in awe of a space and collective experience before the play's ever be- even begun. And there's some theatres that have that and there's some theatres that don't. And it's just capturing what is that about buildings or atmospheres that make you go, yeah, this is exciting to tell a story and this is brilliant and for me it was always at Greenwich it was always when we took things out uh, yes. whenever we put things in you go oh it's a bit domestic now isn't it <laughs> you know I could have this at home whereas actually when you take things out you go
0: bloody hell
1: this is exciting it's a real gem bit of a rough diamond that space but um really really masses and masses of masses of potential
0: that, that space I was touring David we're nearly at the end of time but I'm Nearly at have... the
1: end of time. What are you saying? <laughs> There's an asteroid coming.
0: Our time. We're the end of our time. Oh, right. Sorry. Yeah. Um, but there was one more topic I wanted to talk to you about. Um, yeah. When I introduced you, I t- i said that from a lot of the productions that you've worked with, uh, been in with Lazarus, uh, you've been movement captain. Can you tell our listeners what that what that actually means, what that entails?
2: So I think, in the simplest definition, is you run the warm ups, um, which I think is a bigger job than people realize. Um, you know, everyone comes in with their own baggage from whatever the day is and every person's individual and it's making sure that we're together as an ensemble. Uh, people are vocally, physically warm. Uh, it's also a bit of a pastoral thing. I think it's sort of, I think part of the, you know, I've done that work with the company a few times, so I kind of know how things work and, you know, people could come to me and be like, oh, I'm a bit worried about this or that, making sure everything's safe. Um, and it's sort of just someone to steer the ship when the director has moved on to the next project um yeah i think you know just keeping it tight making sure everyone's everyone's feeling good the atmosphere is good you know as i said like you know acting is a job and you know it's about hitting the beats but you know you want to make sure everyone is feeling safe and looked after and it's you know just keeping a little tab on everything
0: i know we don't like to toot our own horns but why do you think ricky has kept asking you to come back and and
2: and take on that role um I think yeah, the experience is part of it, it's always good to have someone who kind of, again, with the, even just with the theatre itself, who kind of, you know, understands that, OK, this is how we kind of work, this is what we, how we like to do it. Um, I think as well, you know, I'm good at adjusting for different people, uh, you know, listening to people, people did have different needs. And again, you know, people come with different physical levels and being able to detect, OK, guys, today, Everyone's got the energy to jump off the walls, but everyone's voices are completely shocked because we've just done Tech Week and people are knackered. Or it's like, okay, guys, we need to focus up. Or actually, we're all half asleep, let's wake up. And it's, you know, it's just having that, that sort of tab on everyone in the room. And, that, and the ensemble really encourages that. You know, you're aware of what other people are doing. And I think in other shows and other productions, you can go in, do your scene, kind of say your words at the other person, not saying obviously everyone does that all the time but sometimes you can do that whereas in this one it's like no we all need to be here together because if like one of us isn't bringing it we're going to drag everyone else down and it's just accessing everyone's like best generosity like let's go let's do that well I think you've hit the head on the, the nail on the head there Dave is generosity
1: and um and that's why you are a very generous actor on stage but also as a, in a company uh, and as a person and I think that's um wonderful to have in a room right you know it's it's if you've you've got someone in auditions, and actually, I don't think this is very much of a secret, really, but when you're meeting actors in the audition, you are really picking up their vibe. And um, and what makes a great ensemble player? um, And it isn't the person with the biggest CV, actually. It's generally the person who's the most giving, most generous, listens. That's such a basic quality, but people don't. But um, yeah which is great and of course there's a big level of trust there as well isn't there you know because you could be saying all sorts the moment your bats turned you know <laughs> and there are other people who might be movement captains um who um do then start letting that power go to their head and start making decisions about things you're like hang on a minute what's going on there but um yeah i suspect that's what it is really isn't it it's about generosity of time but listening to people and then gearing them up i mean what a what a yeah what a
0: role so, David, you're generous. Uh, you are responsible. Uh, you're a great actor. Are you competitive?
2: Yes, I nice. am.
0: All right. Do you know what,
2: what's coming next? I, I do. I do, and um, I'm yeah we'll see (laughs) i'm sorry i thought we were doing an appraisal then. i thought we were doing this here are
1: your targets
2: for the next 12 months (laughs) so
0: coming up now is the 60 second challenge Uh, if you've listened to the podcast before you know that the rules are of course simple Simple. all you have to do is answer the questions that i ask you i'm going to ask you as many uh, (laughs) i think you've just described
1: any question it's all you do is you answer the questions that's why it's so
0: simple that's it this is it um, but we need you to ask, answer them as quickly as you can. Got we, it. Want, we want you to answer as many as you can in sixty seconds. Got it. You, you can pass, but that question won't add to your final score. Got it. We'll add up your score at the end, and we'll add you to the leaderboard. At the moment, <laughs> at the moment, season two—the season two leader is Lewis Davidson on Woo-woo. fourteen. So is the number to beat.
2: beat. All right, I'm coming for you. Here we yeah. go. Ricky's going
0: to be watching the clock, which I'm just going to get up now. And Ricky is also going to give us a lovely little, uh, what have you got today for us, Ricky? Well, by popular demand, (laughs) and by popular I mean no one's asked for it, um,
1: the tape measure of time has returned this week. So not only does it measure distance, it also measures time for the purposes of this exercise i'm thinking i think one of the the air horn might be back
0: next week so stand by last last opportunity for the tape measure of length and time it may well be the finale for the tape measure of time lovely well david are you ready Uh, i mean
1: ned oh ned's helping (laughs) Ned's Ned's gonna help him
0: (laughs) all right it's the dog everyone if (laughs) you (laughs) forgot ricky are you ready David 60 seconds on the clock.
2: Here All right, we go. Here we
0: go. David, what's your favorite word? Boat, dog or cat? Dog. Beer or wine? Beer. Sweet or savory? Sweet. Where is your happy place? Here. If you didn't have to sleep, what would you do with your extra time? Sit down. Horror or romance? Horror. Tea or coffee?
2: Tea.
0: What's your party trick?
2: Um accents.
0: If you could instantly become an expert in something, what would it be? Uh,
2: Dog behaviour.
0: What job would you be terrible at?
2: Um, Ballet dancer. Uh,
0: If you were given the chance to explore the oceans, go to outer space, or visit 50 countries, which would you choose?
2: 50 countries.
0: What's your favourite book?
2: Um, Game of Thrones.
0: What are you most afraid of? Needles. Too hot or too cold? Too cold. What's one thing about you that surprises people? Um, born in Germany. And oh, there we go. Thank you, Ricky. Take measure of dreams. That is time. Right. I David. I was,
2: the, the dog has been, he was my cheerleader. He's done yes, quite well. was being very Thank supportive you. there with
0: his
1: tongue.
2: Very
0: supportive.
1: <laughs> David's <some> serious
0: <laughs> tongue action. <laughs> How many do you think you answered? I want to say 12. Okay. Oh, it sounded lots more to me than that, Ricky. How many do you think, David? Answered? I think he got eighteen. Oh, okay. Well, I can definitely tell you the answer. <laughs> hey,
1: thank goodness!
0: <laughs> and the answer is you answered sixteen. In okay, sixteen, one and six. So we have a new season two champion. The hop of the leaderboard is David Clayton. Absolutely. Congratulations. We are Congratulations. not worthy.
2: I think that was a quantity over quality set of answers, but, you know, I went with a heart.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's all about the instant response. You know, how else are we going to get the truth? <laughs> <laughs> so huge thank you, David, for joining us today. It's been fantastic to talk to you. David, are you on social media?
2: Uh, I'm not. I don't really use social media, but what I thought is I can give a shout out for my friend who is a lot on social media. So Lovely. his Instagram is at Jake Wilson, spelt, WLSN. He works for Match of the Day magazine. So if you like football, he's one to to find.
0: Brilliant. Brilliant. David, thank you so much for joining (laughs) us today. And thank you for that little plug. Um, Yeah, he he owes me one now. (laughs) Thank you very much for having me. (laughs) Everyone else, thank you for joining us and tuning in. We'll be back in two weeks' time with another Spotlight On podcast. Until then, find out how you can get creative and get involved by checking out our Facebook page, Twitter profile at Lazarus Theatre and bits and bobs on our Instagram at Lazarus Theatre. All the details can be found on our new website, www.lazarustheatrecompany.co.uk. I've been Gavin Harrington-Odedro. And I've been Ricky Dukes. Until next time, stay safe and stay well. Lazarus Theatre Company is a not-for-profit organisation that relies on the generous support of our friends, angels and principal supporters. If you wish to support this podcast or any of the work Lazarus Theatre Company is doing, you can visit the Lazarus Supporters page on our website, lazarustheatrecompany.co.uk or you can send any amount to paypal.me forward slash Lazarus Theatre. Your support is vital to help secure our future in the coming year. Each and every penny will make a difference. You have been listening to the Spotlight On podcast, hosted by Ricky Dukes and Gavin Harrington-Odedra, produced by Lazarus Theatre Company. The music you have been listening to is composed by Bobby Locke, and is from our 2016-2017 production of the Caucasian Chalk Circle, at Kurt Holbrook.